Welcome to the Women of Regenerative Ag podcast. This is a platform for the extraordinary women leading the regenerative agricultural movement and the transformation of our societies around the world. They are on the ground, creating critical shifts in seemingly intractable and highly unsustainable systems, and they have been doing so for a long time. I'm Aurora Flynn, creator of the show. In this series, we look to explore beyond the soil, to the underlying theme of transformation itself across size, scale, multiple dimensions, from that very internal landscape of human consciousness to the outer manifestation in the world around us, be it in the form of agricultural management practices, tools, and techniques, to culture, economics, policy, as well as the built environment. This series is a joint venture with Soil for Climate and my own organization, the Outer Borders Agency, where we work to help transform the human social infrastructure and the built environment to create truly resilient and regenerative societies. These recordings originally aired as interactive live stream interviews on social media. They were held during the initial months of the U.S. COVID lockdown, and due to limited facilities, we sometimes had to get creative with our locations and dealt with the occasional technical issue. Please enjoy these incredible women. You're listening to the Women of Regenerative Ag podcast. My guest today is Misty West Gay. She is a mom, poet, gardener, herbalist, and regenerative rancher. She and her husband own Freestone Ranch in Northern California. They are a certified fiber shed climate beneficial producer and a member of the American Grassfed Association. She is also a member of the Sonoma County Food System Alliance. Misty, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. What I'd love to start out doing is because people don't know your context is to really illuminate that for them. So mm-hmm. everything from what your operation looks like to uh, also strategy considerations to consumers, who, who's your market, et cetera. Yeah. Well, we, Freestone Ranch is grass-fed, grass-finished beef in Western Sonoma County. Um, we own and operate Uh, four ranches, two here in Sonoma County and two in Mendocino County. Um, It's it's a fair bit of acreage, but what it's really about is a deeper connection to the land, an exploration of what that means, an exploration of how that works. Um, We came from the city. This was kind of my husband's dream, and I have learned so much along the way. Both of us came from families that skipped a generation. Um, our grandparents were in ag, and uh, and our parents ran away to the cities, and we came back. So we had hoped we could apply what we learned in the city to, you know, regenerative ag patterns and how does it all work and how does it fit together. We both have this deep interest in how things work at the root level and we're curious about the structures of things and how they fit together and how systems theory applies. Um, And all of these things work in the broader picture, but the context shifts much more deeply than we had ever imagined. And the, um, the ways the pieces work together, it's, it's just fascinating. It's endlessly fascinating, but we're, we're part of something much, much bigger than we are. And that's a good thing. So what's the, what is the management strategy you employ in regard to, let's say, animal, animal conditioning or, lands, or health of the landscape ecosystem function? 
Well, we started out reading everything. This is 15 years ago. Reading yeah, actually, Misty, let's take it back even a little bit. Cause I remember when I first met you, I was like, so how long you've been doing this? And like, and I assumed there was a legacy and you're like, no, no, I came from the tech industry. And I was like, what? <laughs> so like, this is part of what I love about you is just the, the moment you told me, you were like, no, we just kind of bought some books to figure it out. And so you weren't even actually going to ranch when you first got the land though. What was that? Well, when we first bought the land, our intention was to farm, not right. to ranch. We wanted to grow vegetables. Um, but what we wanted to do was a sort of expansive vision of no-till um, here and there in patches and yeah. explore land restoration and creek and gully restoration and that kind of thing. Um, you know, we didn't want to till everything up and because from the beginning, we had this vision that we can't be human centric. More recently, I've coined this term I haven't seen anywhere, human privilege. We wanted to explore human privilege, although I wouldn't have called it that then. Um, what does it mean to, to accept a place as part of a large, an ecosystem larger than yourself? Um, this was a question that drove both of our sets of grandparents out of ag because they just didn't see a way to function in the intersection of, um, of uh, ag and economic policy choices. You know, so they, my, my, yeah? No, please, I wanna hear more about that. So they found conflict within the integrity of, of the structure of who they are with what the system was asking them to be? Right, so um, John's grandfather was an Ohio dairyman and he was, it wasn't called organic then, but he was very focused on compost and healthy land tending and healthy, healthy approaches. And he was sort of inexorably put out of business by the neighbors mechanizing. So, you know, not to say that looking with today's lens at his grandfather's practices, we might've seen things we wouldn't consider regenerative, right? Okay. I would have in from today's lens but at the time he was his practices were more regenerative than his neighbors and his neighbors were adapting to mechanizing and to the demands of the extractive economy sort of more quickly than he was this is oh i mean this is argument i was just hearing reading about in the new york times was sort of i mean the, the argument against sort of regenerative ranching is principally the scalability you know, there's immediate throwdown going, it's not as efficient, it's, it's you know, people are going to, that a person next door is always going to make more by that other methodology. Um, right. right, right. And so and there's, I, yeah, yeah. No, I, I button that with saying, and that's assuming we want to operate within the cultural construct of what that is, which is extraction, get as big as you possibly can, cap, you know, sort of the growth model of how big can we get this? How much money can we make? Um, which can we do that here? Can we just start framing that as human privilege? Because sure. what it really does okay. is it is it assumes you know a sort of manifest destiny for all the biomass for human right. use, and I think that's just wildly inappropriate, and that's a self-limiting system, not to mention. So I think efficiency is kind of a cudgel that's wielded against the idea that other species have any rights. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I mean, it seems to me like a false God. I just don't, efficiency doesn't work for me. It's a, it's not a real thing. 
Yeah, I, 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 and I think this is part of what I hope these dialogues sort of bring to light for communities to really start questioning language we use, uh, efficiency being one of them in terms of industrial linear uh, food modeling, especially when we're losing about a third of the food grown in the world right now uh, in transport, in food waste, uh, in going bad in storage. Um, efficiency, this is not. And especially when you move away from an economic model that talks about things in terms of monetary value and then externalities. And this is what really gets me about this game is that, and I think I feel like it's a complete game at this point, the language game, which is that we have cheap, the idea that there is no such thing as cheap food. Um, and that the very real implication is that if we fold in social issues of social equity, right, proper pay, um, mm -hmm. insurance, et cetera, protection for farm laborers, for uh, people working in slaughterhouses, which are primarily people of color, um, and landowners are predominantly white, um, that we then have to fold in externalities uh, to do with environmental degradation, pollution. Um, it's not just about a carbon footprint. It is about every system you interrupt that, it, that we are in fact emergent properties out of, right? We don't exist without flora and fauna or the coral, right? Those, that makes this True. body function and they are related to the atmosphere to the stratosphere to where the planets are like that actually matters where everything has been to support the evolution of the this bipedal being that matters so if that consideration is folded into an economic model and those planetary boundaries are we don't run the words of efficiency this or or of externalities in mm -hmm. fact it comes to resiliency and circularity um, reuse, um, but closing all of those, those, those systems completely. And I think the, what did you say? Human centric? Human, Human privilege. privilege. Yeah. It's, it's a really myopic sort of vision in a way to ignore everything that made your being possible. But I think until you see that it's, it's, I, I do understand why. It's, it's a big shift. I mean, I think Kate Rayworth talks about this in Donut Economics. I yeah. think it's really important to start shifting our focus to these other kinds of approaches and other kinds of systems and decentering our species from the conversation and to and, and to understand that that that's not a giving up that that's yeah. a that's a moving forward as part of something larger than ourselves because what we're doing now i i feel like the even to speak of efficiency and externalities in the way that we do it's assuming that it's all for us. It's assuming that it's okay for us to take the lion's share of the biomass and devote it to human use and human needs. So I think, so, so, so that was John's grandpa dealing with all that. And then my grandpa um, had been a Mormon farmer in Utah and he uh, got a job with the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization and spent the rest of his career with my dad growing up with him all over the world. Um, he was this incredibly brilliant plant whisperer and organic farmer himself, but what he was tasked with by the FAO was um, persuading, you know, struggling tribes in Africa and the Middle East to buy seed and to farm annuals and to use fertilizer. So that was, that was the time of the green revolution. So I have to imagine that must've been really difficult for him 
but all the stories were that he was this incredibly wise, inspired person. And I mean, I knew him when I was young and his garden was incredible. So I had the great good luck to grow up eating vegetables from his garden um, when, when he retired. But what he was looking at and what John's grandpa was looking at was a sort of a self, a view of self-limitation, like, hey, this isn't going to be sustainable. We can't stay here, right? And in a sense, he joined the UN because he wasn't sure how things would look for him as a farmer long-term. So John and I returned to the land with that legacy. Like, well, what, what happened? Is there, can we understand this more deeply? How did this go? Can we apply what we learned in the city of structure and function and system and it's just it's been so much bigger than that so we sell grass-fed grass-finished beef we're very proud of our beef it's excellent beef we get a lot of rave reviews and we have these funny systems i know you wanted to get into this too of um, navigating how to market our beef you know we've been clear from the beginning that we want it to be premium beef at a moderate price marketed primarily to families and um, we're we're kind of funny birds to be doing this but it's it's this is where we need to be um you're still back on your grandfather. Like we're, I know, I feel like we're flying off here, but. It's not, no, it's really beautiful. And I think uh, we'll handle the extra, you know, the, the intersectionality appropriately. I think these are really yeah, beautiful yeah. cross-pollinating themes because you have your grandfather in this situation, not able to actualize what he actually believes to be true about these dynamic systems and processes of the earth. And then he joins the UN to take it to a global level to see if he can then work with other uh, you know tribes and, and humans around the world in supporting them in in that process as well i imagine he came up against um well of course i'm sure he did that uh the you know the global industrialized model I and mean, what what decade was this decent it's interesting to me i was looking at the history of centralization and it's actually really recent um yeah i think this was the 50s and 60s yeah so it was really after world war ii that 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 centralization really ticked up in north america at a, at a great right because if you think about the history of that right europe had to rebuild and yes. and our country did not yes so we had this sort of economic head start right well it's interesting i mean because today you know today's it's what it's 15 to 20 companies corporations that own almost all of the global food so to, to get back into the thread where we were, um, I yeah. wanted to know something that I had missed calling out earlier, which was that our initial plan had been to do vegetables, but as we got deeper into doing all this reading, we got piles and piles of books about regenerative ag and holistic management, and we learned about Savory's work and all of this kind of stuff. We were super excited and we did a permaculture class, you know, we did all the things. And one of, and and we had people out to come look at our land and sort of guide us and advise us on what we might do. And we did a couple of NRCS projects and we did an RCD project, sort of trying to get a sense of the lay of the land and who the players were and how the agencies work. Yeah, we, we, we did all this reading and all this research to try and get a sense of the lay of the land and what we wanted to do. And to our, and 
um, when we first came here, the land was leased to a, a dairy guy just across the way for grazing for his replacement heifers. And his assumption was that we were city people, so we would want him gone. And we said, well, we're, we're not ready yet. We're still kind of in learning mode. And um, we learned a lot from watching his patterns with grazing his replacement heifers. It was not a particularly regenerative or super attentive approach, but he was a deeply good guy and we learned a lot. And um, just from watching that and you know how, how that all worked and learning from his herd a little bit. And we discovered that our place really doesn't have enough water to do um, row crops effectively. Right. And so this oh. is what always made me laugh because I'm kind of the immediate reaction is oh, cows take a lot of water. Cattle's really water intensive. Like, right. What do you mean you couldn't grow some annuals, Misty? You know, like, what is that? What can this you talk a little bit about that? This was hilarious to me. So while the, the popular, the sort of mainstream discourse was totally opposite, all the land managers we were getting to know and totally respected and all the books we were reading said, no, this is, uh, and even our zoning, we're on LEA land, land extensive agriculture, which is different from land intensive agriculture. Land mm -hmm. intensive agriculture is sort of the, the best bottom land, the best valley land, which our laws and customs say is for row crops and tillage. Our land is LEA, which means it's a little rockier, the soil is not as great, it's a little bit hilly, therefore grazing which totally stands all the conventional wisdom on its head. And yet this was deeper conventional wisdom than the conventional wisdom, or at least than the propaganda. So it became very clear to us that we didn't have row crop land. You know, the, the real estate people had been trying to sell it for vineyard, but even the vineyard people thought it didn't have enough water. So Super the- the irony is very thick, right? So the clear thing for us to do in that context was holistic grazing, because that's what works best on hilly land with limited water. And I really want to emphasize that point. And that's, our cows do not take all the water. All the, when people talk about beef taking tons and tons of water, what they're talking about is feedlots. And I think they have to be including the water that's required to grow all that corn and soy, I think, right? I don't know where they get those calculations. Uh, that's, actually a, that's actually a good question. I don't actually know if they're throwing, because here's it here again, there's this propensity to separate uh, these clean lines as if these aren't transboundary relationships happening. And so, like, for instance, I was just reading the other day in this kind of, um, I was just reading that like the energy that goes into creating fertilizers, for instance, is not actually a part of the agricultural sector. It's industrial, um, right? Oh. And so, yeah. So the footprint is actually a lot bigger for ag than we like to talk about. It's, you know, it's actually, it's so significant that it can bump a footprint from let's say 6% to 16, which is what it did to Germany. Um, yeah. That would so, be huge to factor that in. Yeah. It's a, it's an unbelievable implication. Um, so part of what yeah it's a, there's a lot so again i think that's where some of these myths come from right some of these misleading ideas are built from settle out um are built from incomplete storytelling right mm -hmm. from people harnessing 
So the idea that cattle take a ton of water, it's again, when people go, well, well, how can we possibly scale this to feed a nation? This is a part of what we have to talk about is what is that corn and soybeans? Like, what are these acreages? This is the other, when I look at BLM land, right? This is um, the Bureau of Land Management. We're looking mm -hmm. at land that is resting, missing ungulate, you know, megafauna relationships in mass mm -hmm. proportions um, that is going ungrazed, fuel loads that are incredibly high. These are all places and land structures. I'm not saying that we need to occupy them with cattle um, like we see in continuous grazing. I am saying that there's land management intending, including, um, you know, uh, taking away incentives for crops that are high fossil fuel dependencies that are actually producing, you know, processed food that's just, you know, absolutely detrimental for our immunity. Um, yep. and I, keep, I keep wanting to tie this back to COVID because, you know, food is thy medicine. And it's, it's one of these social equity issues of outrage for me that um, when we're talking about not just 265 million people by the end of the year facing acute hunger. I mean, this is a hunger pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, but also looking at the lack of access to nutritious food, to the nourishment that our bodies need on a micronutrient level that's already being revealed in research that we're seeing correlated to, to fatalities of COVID, to chronic illness. Um, yeah. And that this is actually a mainstay and remedy um, is the proper food for your body to function, right? Um, all right, this really gets me so much so because it becomes this kind of like debatable issue like, well, they have enough processed food today to meet a calorie need. And I'm like, wow, this is a really incomplete conversation, especially it's, when people love yeah. to talk about productivity. I'm like, how productive do you think people are when they're actually, you know, metabolically starving? Oh, it's just, it's, it's too painful to contemplate. And even yeah. people who aren't starving, they, they're, they're what? They're supposed to function on processed food and caffeine? And that's what I mean, is that that yeah. processed food and that obesity, I mean, that, that is actually a, a different form of starvation for your cells. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So efficiency, externalities, right? Yes. It's everywhere. So I think one of, you know, the two biggest places I kind of wanted to explore was that that's, you know, returning to that sacred connection with uh, that intimacy, right? Maybe that's a better word with the care yeah. and compassion and relationship yeah. to animal harvest. But I think a really good way to enter that conversation is just to really talk about the bottleneck that sort of became very apparent to us on a national level. And I think that's part of the discussion around the silver linings of COVID, what the pandemic and lockdowns have illuminated as far as infrastructure in the industrialized food model. Uh, which also impacts regenerative ranchers and producers in a big way, because we are not separate from this system yet. Um, that was uh, very brittle, right? The weak link. And that's something mm -hmm. we've talked about in our communities for a long time. This, this slaughterhouse issue, the lack of access, um, being restricted by uh, its locality to the point where either we have to grain finish or the trauma that's inflicted on the animals. And I know that sounds strange for people, but bear with me because transport is actually a very stressful process for these animals. And it actually really matters to us a great deal that, um, that there is that, that sense of uh, sanctity and care for these beings. Um, and so these, these conversations about slaughter and connection um, are something I wanna get into. Uh, 
let's take it through the access of these slaughterhouses, Misty. What did you observe and experience your own ranch and the community around you in light of these um, breaks within the systems? Yeah, so I want to do a bit of framing because I love where you're going with this. Great. And then I'll get into just the, the, the lived specifics of it. Sure. So for framing, I like to think of this as what, what is this sort of ugly divorce we've had from our own habitat as a species? How is it that we have embraced scale and these sort of imagined economic systems as our primary sort of structural organization of the way we think of our daily lives over and above connection with our habitat? How is that possible? How is it that we've internalized these rule systems so deeply that functioning within these rule systems comes ahead of functioning within our habitat? And part of that is scale. That's part of the question and part of the answer. You know, I don't know that whole thing, but even to think of it in terms of slaughter at scale, you know, that word is kind of awful. I tend to prefer to call it harvest, but I understand that, you know, when you call it harvest, there's a lot of people who roll their eyes <laughs> pretty intensively. And I understand that because it's, you know, it's, I don't have the hubris to speak to what plant consciousness is like, but I have connected with it. And I can say from experience that it goes much more deeply than a lot of people imagine. And there is an emotional experience there. And it's not, my experience of that is it's just not as different from animal consciousness as people might imagine. So that has implications for all of our food system and really for our place in the web of life. Right, so I, I like to think of slaughter in that context. So the way we operate on a, you know, as a ranch, um, there are two systems we can work with. There's a, in, in this, we're in the state of California and California is a state that some number of years ago um, accepted uh, federal jurisdiction over, I have to get the history right, but essentially there are two parallel systems operating in California. There's a state certified uh, processing and cut and wrap system, and there's a federal USDA certified. And anything for wholesale, restaurants, retail needs to go with the USDA federal system. Um, ranchers are given um, an opportunity to sell direct through state certified butchers that are invariably sort of small family owned local little shops. And a lot of communities don't have access to them at all. Um, in Sonoma County, we're very lucky. We have um, two small state certified local butchers. There's Willowside in Santa Rosa and Buds in Pengrove, and they're both great. We're very lucky to have them as part of our community. Um, you can buy quarters through them. The way the rules work, you're only allowed to buy direct from them as a consumer at quantity. So a quarter of beef is quite a lot. It's like, it's historically it's been sold on the hanging weight, which means you're buying a share of a live animal. So you pay a smaller rate per pound, um, then you, it's kind of a gross weight versus net weight. You take home nice little packages, cut and wrapped and frozen and labeled, but, uh, you pay a smaller rate per pound flat across all the cuts. Does so that make sense? Explaining it, does. it clearly? 
Yes, and I want to look. I would love a little clarity in what the Prime Act that Massey has been trying to push through for about five years now would add. Do you much know much about that? Because part of the argument right now is that it you are essentially buying. You have to buy the live animal before mm -hmm. it goes to slaughter. And so you're saying at state level that has shifted for us in California. Well, I'm not that familiar with the Prime Act. Maybe you can speak to that more than I can. A little bit, but I'd like to hear further from with where you're going with this and then also in relationship to what why mobile start harvesting units for instance were now uh, became an asset and something we we chose as sort of a regional uh you know a, a regional tool for for regenerative producers to utilize yeah yeah so what a mobile harvesting unit is it's it would be very new we're looking at two of them in sonoma county which is incredibly amazing and lucky um Historically, our business has been part wholesale retail. We haven't done much restaurants. Um, we have some wholesale customers and um, a couple and some local grocery stores. So we do those USDA, which means that has to go it Rancho back in the day, and then it became Marin Sun when Marin Sun bought Rancho and refurbished it. And in January of this year, before COVID hit, they had. Um, they sort of informed all the local ranchers that they were consolidating their vertical supply chain. So they would only harvest and process their own wholesale animals because they just, there was, there was a lot of anger about that in the local ranching community, as you might imagine. Um, right. Part of, yeah. No, I'm just saying, but the, the, this was due to economic viability for them as yeah. operators. Yeah. Yeah. It was an economic viability issue. So there were a lot of local ranchers saying, hey, you know, when you started up, when you bought Rancho, you agreed that you would take local ranchers forever. And, you know, they did make that agreement, but that wasn't a viable agreement for them economically because they're sort of, you know, beset by the same things that everyone is beset by. Yeah, I, I think getting some clarity around why there's this um why is it not financially viable to have these sometimes these smaller slaughterhouses um especially now in light of covid where you know seth was just telling me about uh, and i'm hearing from numerous places uh that you know mom and pop slaughterhouses are actually booked out and overrun because of the restrictions um, and, the, and these larger slaughterhouses, which are actually really confined situations, getting six feet apart is very tricky, um, if actually impossible because of some of the operations. Um, and uh, the, there's also a lot more specialization at, at smaller slaughterhouses, right? There's actual butchering going on, there's skilled trades and craft, you know, that abilities that have to be taught. Um, they're actually pretty different in, in some of these larger mega industrialized yeah. slaughterhouses. But I'm curious about the what was the case for Marin Sun with the economic restrictions and also uh, is there any shifting in light of what's happening? Are they just settling? I mean, so this, this effectively stopped access for grass-fed, 100% grass-fed producers in the area that were utilizing them, right? All of a sudden they had to drive way north, or in our case, drive to Modesto. So Modesto is a lot closer. It's two hours instead of five, but Modesto can't do the kind of volume that a lot of the, the larger local producers need. Okay. 
it works for us because we're really small. Okay, so you, the cattle, you, your cattle, what about, let's say, uh, Guido's Place or these other, you know, holistic ag, or um, do you know what, what they're doing? Where does um, yeah, Gilliam it, take all over the map. grass grazing? Okay. Yeah, um, it's all over the map. There's, a, there's also a small animal um, harvester in Modesto that you can use, and they are doing, you know, goats and goats and sheep. and and Western has, Western's been great. They are doing uh, beef only. Their primary market is local dairies and they're really small. So, so far so good, you know, okay. and I anticipate our wholesale business staying kind of small. Um, Guido has been, Guido's great. He's, well, he's, he's doing, he's doing some Western with us. We've been doing some collaborative hauling with him. Ah, okay. So everybody, Guido is a producer in more of the Valley Ford area. He's true grass. Mm -hmm. He's a, he's another uh, sort of regenerative rancher specializes in Wagyu. He has a fantastic ethos and philosophy um, mm -hmm. and distributes to the San Francisco Bay area. Um, definitely one of the leaders in the community here in his uh, compassion and passion for the movement and the culture behind, yes. behind this whole transformation. And you can imagine someone like Guido, he can't be doing state certified and direct to consumer. He has a high-end Bay Area market that doesn't tolerate this sort of weirdness of selling quarters, right? We have, we have been committed for years to quarters at moderate prices. And there are people like, um, like Mike and Sally Gale who have been doing quarters forever and they just have a steady business. It's a steady business. It's also a, a question of, how you want to go about doing your business. You know, is it okay to have a steady business or do you have to be sort of more of a, more of an aggressive capitalist about it? You know, I think there's room for both in the market and I celebrate what the Gales are doing and I celebrate what the Magruders are doing. They're amazing. And I celebrate what Guido is doing. And it's all, it's, it's all really different. Everybody has really different approaches to the market. And I think that's always going to be true because to some extent, the way you move in a market is a reflection of where you're coming from as a human. But um, I think that's part of the issue with scale is that past a certain point, the, um, you can't operate as an expression of where someone's coming from personally or spiritually because it's it's just too big mm. can you say more to that is that because you're running up up against well probably business models and economic models that restrict sort of maybe take you outside of those i'm assuming taking you outside of that ethos no i think it's a thing i think it's more fundamental than that there's a thing called the okay. dunbar number in okay. psychology um, it's usually pegged between, depending on who you ask, it's usually pegged between 100 and 120, 130. And that is effectively an upper limit of where a village can operate as a coherent entity with sort of human, emotional, spiritual relationships intact. Beyond that number, um, people just don't seem to have the wiring to function well. Like it's another example is duality. It's a little bit like, I think the way that duality functions in our culture, you know, sort of coalescing into these opposite camps without even meaning to and the loss of nuance in discussions 
I think it's a wetware issue with, with our brains and our wiring that it's just, you almost have to be reductionist to be able to handle all the things that come. But I don't know, that's maybe something for a different conversation. But I think that some of the corporate soulless behavior that happens comes down to the Dunbar number and how hard it is to function at scale. I think we're just not equipped emotionally to function at these scales. So you get this kind of sociopathic behavior at scale because it just doesn't work. So I don't know. I think this I'm is a great. To be wrong no. that. And I think that's an interesting conversation. But I think that's a lot of what people are up against. I think this is actually a really important topic of conversation because there's actually research that shows that there's a, a, a suppression in the functioning of mirror neurons for people in power positions and that after mm -hmm. a while there is an engagement of what, what you're talking about which is this sort of there's a triad of sociopathic you know sociopathic behaviors that kind of become necessary as both you know somebody who's taking a leadership position and building let's say at that type of scale doesn't want to emotionally and cognitively sort of take on the realities of let's say externalities so to speak that their mm -hmm. actions may be engaging in um, and I think this also applies to people who are making decisions about their food, right? It's very easy to be like slaughtered cow, killed animal. Uh, I'm going to eat plant-based. It had no impact. And this is not, I'm not wanting to get into an impact of those facts as much as the way we kind of remove ourselves from our impacts um, and don't actually want to connect to, um, to them. And I think part of that can come when we do scale, which is to just back away from the implications and the impact and the opinions of others rather than learning to be uh, accountable and responsible for communication for transparency for emotional self-regulation for communication right all of these soft skills which actually make uh, us function and people day getting on facebook and thinking that it's a it's a construct of reality that actually is being informed, you know, uh, how do I say this? Uh, that the amygdala hijack, so to speak, right? The reactivity they're experiencing is uh, within direct relationship to what is being communicated as opposed to a belief and a thought and, and words on a screen that lacks context, lacks intonality, you know, mm -hmm. intonation, lacks uh, you know, a sense of, of energy between one another. And all of these things are, are fundamental skill sets to being in a, in a smaller sized community. Is right. That's, I think that's a good way to put it. Those are skills that have been lost and they have been lost partly because of the necessity of functioning at scale and the challenges of functioning at scale. And part of the, yeah. And the oversimplification that comes with making and enforcing dualities when the nuance is all that was really there anyway. So then from a practical perspective, then you get into things like, well, we can't talk about the violence of tillage because you have to be in the vegan camp or the meat eating camp, Beautiful. right? And you can't, and you can't talk about just the, the sort of horror of endless tillage and all the habitat that's wrecked from that. And you can't have discussions about how no-till agriculture could actually support much healthier food and it could do it in numbers that could feed people well but so let's, really, yeah no sorry missy i jumped over again 
oh, that's okay. But it could really, but those discussions need to happen in context of framing us as one of many species that have value, right? Because yeah. some of, I really feel like some of these discussions are not so much about feeding the world, but they're about um, simplifying the world to control it. It's a, it's a knowledge and a control thing more than a capability thing. Okay. That's really beautiful. So hold on, let's hold on to that because that actually really applies to the nuance that I've been thinking about a lot um, with my own journey from uh, strictly, you know, a concern with my impact on the world as, a, as somebody eating food. I was probably, you know, 10 years old when I went, you know what? And I've been working at wildlife rescue, marine mammal rescue, I was working on dairies. All I did was mother animals. And I just kind of went, I, I eat meat and I can't, I can't harvest, I can't slaughter. Ugh, that's out of integrity with my being. Why is that? Until I can answer that question, I don't And so I went into a long journey of inquiry that's much more emotional and spiritual than I think we like to make the conversation around what our food choices are. We get very reductionistic going, I'm going to give you facts and knowledge and you're going to change your mind. But we know that beliefs aren't formed that way. Um, and I'm curious about your own journey. Um, mine ended up being bent over a brain that had, you know, I was given five years to live and we didn't know how to heal it and tick-borne illnesses, infiltrating brain, nervous system, different organs, heart. Um, and it was a very striking sort of conversation with the intimacies of my cells, that primordial body that was like, you need bone broth, you need organs, you need to consume these things. And that was a whole process for me to get there. And I didn't want to go there until I had a connection that was still open, empathic, deeply entrenched in the lives of these animals. Um, and that's a relationship I don't often hear discussed. And I'd love to hear from you because I hear from regenerative ranchers quite often how deeply their animals matter to them, how connected they are. I remember witnessing Ariel Greenwood put her hand on one of the beeves that Guido had come to haul away to go to, this, to the mobile unit. And it was this really intimate, loving, She'd raised those babies. They had uh, regenerated perennials. They had been, in the, you know, and this is a weird reality for people to take in how you stay open and present to your emotional body and loving these animals um, while taking their life. And how is that not sociopathic? Yeah, that is a really good question. That's a challenging place to go in our culture mm. of false dualities. Um, I don't want to get us into too much trouble here, but I, can I, I just say that I, I please, I will speak with community. I will monitor chats. I think this is, a, this is a, it is okay for people to be a part of this dialogue and be responsible for their triggers they may have to this. This is a, a healthy conversation and I, I will provide the space for it, Misty. I would love your thoughts. Okay. Well, um, I guess I would start with two things, three things. Food is incredibly deeply sacred. What our mission is, and my mission personally, is a reconnection with my habitat. What does that mean for me? And that I eat and I am also food. Um, I've thought about this very deeply. I might start, okay, I'll start with three things. 
I watched Ariel with the animals too. And I found it incredibly inspiring. Her just profound connection was wonderful, wonderful. And for me, there was a time years ago when I first got into vegetable gardening. I had always kind of wanted to growing up in my grandpa's garden. Uh, well, growing up, getting to visit my grandpa's garden. Our garden was not like his. Um, the first time I grew an onion, onions were the first crop that I grew in my little garden before we moved here, where to harvest it, you pull the whole thing up. And, um, and I grew the onion. I had, I had some kale going. I had some tomatoes. I had a few other things going. And, um, but that was a little different. Tomato, you're picking the fruit. Kale, I was good at the, I tend to follow the herbalist 30% rule with my vegetables. I like to grow enough of a thing so that I'm only ever picking 30% of a given plant. And that means I've been able to perennialize a lot of vegetables that people think of as annuals, which has been kind of an interesting journey in and of itself. Like, I don't consider myself a super great gardener. I have so much to learn. But one of many things I've learned as a gardener is framing a lot of these European vegetables that we grow as annuals is really far more about the human frame than about the plant frame. You know, some of my, some of my annuals, some of my kales and plants like that, they're really happy to grow as perennials given the opportunity. You know, granted, they've hybridized in my garden because we do all our seed saving and, you know, there are things that we do that support that process. But anyway, to get back to the onion, I pulled up this onion and just fell over sobbing because I had killed the onion. I had harvested this onion. It didn't feel different to me from harvesting an animal. Although granted, I hadn't done it yet then. This was before we moved here. But I felt in that moment, this incredible connection with the food web, with the web of life. There was, this was not a fruit that I had picked or a leaf that I had picked following the 30% rule. That was it for that plant. And the way onions have been bred, you know, my other option would be to just let it go and it would set seed and then I could plant seeds and plant more onions from from that onion but really what what was happening was I pulled up the onion and I was going to chop it up and put it in a soup and that was a big moment for me and it became very clear to me in that moment that the web of life was so much bigger than any idea or any construct that I had about it or any ideas that I had about it, any ideas that I had about what we should or shouldn't eat or any of that kind of went out the window for me when I pulled up that onion and had this just overwhelming grief. Mm. So what about, you know, I can't help but, you know, hear the, and I, and I, I have this dialogue in my, you know, as an herbalist as well, right? And I'm always asking plants and checking. I mean, I find pruning and every gardening and wild crafting and harvesting very intuitive and very reciprocal and very, you know, what is for the benefit of the ecology and the plant, et cetera. Um, 
but I also, you know, know that animals feel, right? There's these great emotional bodies within them and you can sense that, right? I remember loading up, you know, 400 and some odd sheep with Aaron Gilliam's wheatgrass grazing with, uh, you know, we had grazing contracts. This was primarily um, ecosystem function improvement, fuel load reduction. And, you know, and he's precious with them. And I think that's really the fair word. Um, yeah. So I think that's part of what, you know, when when people speak of sacredness, and I think that's sort of a button, I, I know we've got to wrap up really soon here and I'm gonna check the comments. When people speak of sacredness, I'd like to just in, invite everyone to really consider and was really the profound journey for myself in that fight between my mind and my heart, what my body needed versus what my intellect was telling me versus what my heart was telling me. Um, about the, the connection to these animals is that there is a sacred moment when you take, when I found I, cause I chose to harvest myself, that that was my initiation was going, I'm going to learn how to do this um, so that I know what that is. And I feel that my heart bloody well stays open and I stay connected and I had to grieve and I had to stay with it. I didn't want that it came in a package and I'm disconnected from what that meant. Um, so being through that journey and choosing to live in that cycle is um, there's a profound gratitude that comes up and there is an extra judicious care I have with where this food comes from. Even as I was chronically ill living in poverty, I went, I know that the, the well-being of that animal matters. And so for me, I chose to spend what little money I had or borrowed money I had at the time on making sure I purchased animals from, and this is a, I'm not saying that's for everybody, it's a huge implications of social equity and food injustice that blow, like that's why I'm passionate about it because that was the, that was a choice I had to make. It's choices we all have to make and I don't want us to. And also these price tags are too low to not accommodate social equity issues and um, externalities, right? Mm -hmm. um, anyway, it's, it's just, it's, it's a very interesting, um, Again, it's, there's a dualistic thought to food choice. There's a dualistic thought to then the debates that ensue and unkindness and a reductionistic and a judgment. And the truth is, is that it's a very, like you're expressing really sweetly and beautifully um, and profoundly that there is a journey there in relationship to your food um, that is spiritual and it's emotional and it's moral. And it's not one that's won over I'm going to tell you what's right and what's wrong and what the facts are. Um, and actually even thinking about what's, what's won or lost is, is really sort of a fallacious way to exist within community. And I think we lose it when we are living in scale. Well, I want to say one more thing on that, and then maybe we should take a couple questions. Um, shout out to Jessica Prentice. Um, her book, Full Moon Feast, was incredibly helpful for me in dealing with these questions and going on my personal journey of how to approach that. She talks about the seasons of the year, the seasonality of food, the seasonality of vegetables. Um, how does that work in context of humans as part of a sacred habitat? So that was really helpful to me. She was also one of the founders of Three Stone Hearth in Berkeley which is a community supported kitchen. They do um, Weston Price style food, uh, sort of a, a high-end takeout kind of thing, soups and stews and bone broth and all of that. I actually volunteered in their kitchen for a while, learned a lot about cooking from them and I'm incredibly grateful for that experience and for Jessica's work. That was really helpful. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I'm proud of our beef and there's so much more to say, but maybe we should take questions. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm scanning for them right now. I'm kind of going over as you've been sharing that, which I think is a really important part of the journey, our influences. Um, And I'm not actually seeing, we've got 11 people. There's other comments going on on that first video now, actually. Uh, it's uh they're they're being they're being watched anybody who's who's with us now i think we've got about 10 people um any questions for questions for misty we have the opportunity to flesh out deeper lines even if they're not questions well if there's not questions oh that's um okay. one thing i wrote down i didn't i didn't get to no, he, he has a question about the soil testing you do. There's, you know, sort of anything from, of course, the lab to how you gauge it just as a rancher on the ground. Oh, yeah. Well, we participate in a few different um, third-party monitoring programs to um, sort of check and verify that we're building soil and being good stewards. Um, one of them is the Fibershed Climate Beneficial um, Producer Program and they do soil sampling they check for carbon numbers so they've sort of proven that we are actually sequestering carbon with our practices i can um, i can send you a link with more information on the on their program but we found them to be incredibly helpful a really great resource on understanding and showing scientifically that what we're doing is actually benefiting the soil and we also participate in a rancher-to-rancher program that monitors um, grass diversity and growth in different patches around the land to um, sort of toward showing and demonstrating that we are building density and diversity of perennial grasses and um, we're not overgrazing and we are being good stewards. No, it's fantastic. That's with Kent Reeves and Richard King still. Yeah. Yeah, that was what Ariel and I were doing. And to be fair, they were that was part of the reason they brought us on. They were wanting to broaden the scope. They're I love what they do and I love the way they approach it. Um I think they they kind of informed early thoughts I had about what conversations you actually have when you're standing around the soil and what what is actually relevant. Um and I mean that sociologically. You know, Misty, I have a question really quickly about the um about the uh, the fiber shed climate beneficial producer, I think that's such a unique program. And I remember when I purchased my my carbon sequestering wool beanie, I was very proud that I could know that. Um, and I would love it if you'd share a little bit about that program and about your involvement in that and what that looks like as a producer. Yeah, well, we're part of their their first sort of ongoing cohort of climate beneficial farms and ranches. Um, as, as you know, their, their original goal, Rebecca Burgess founded Fibershed, um, I don't remember exactly when, but their main, their main emphasis is on rebuilding a local textile economy um, for, because producers of sheep and lamb locally have kind of lost their market to global wool production, but not just to wool, also to um, polyester. So there's been all this insanity about wearing imported polyester clothes and the impact of that on um, 
you know, on carbon, on the land, on people's connection to the land. So what she's trying to do and doing successfully, it's, it's very inspiring, her work, um, is to try to recreate a market for local wool, for local wool, local wool products, wool clothing. And she's doing the advocacy. She's doing the marketing. <clears throat> it's, it's, it's very inspiring. So the producer program and including us in the producer program, obviously we don't have sheep, we don't produce wool, but we do sequester carbon. So we're part of the first cohort that was kind of an expansion of that original idea to include people who are through their practices with hedgerows, with careful grazing, with soil building, with pollinator plants. There's a long list of things that you can do um, that support the sequestration of carbon on ranch land. And understanding that most land is in private ownership. So how to do careful and healthy stewardship of BLM land or of other kinds of government land is a whole other question. And there are lots of people dedicated to that. Um, well, Misty, let's jump in. Rachel's asking, how does grazing cattle connect to growing crops and restoring local ecosystems? I, you know, I know we're, we're out of time with you. Um, can you button with that, with sort of this, uh, like a mini vision there? Because that really, and, and I will make sure we flesh this out in forthcoming episodes, but that relationship of crops to megafauna, to their placement on a landscape and what she's advocating for. Um, yes. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. So the terms that you want to Google to learn more about this, <clears throat> excuse me, <laughs> are nutrient cycling and metabolic rift, R-I-F-T. So what nutrient cycling means, if you think about this, if um, the insanity of our sewer systems. So the land actually needs the nitrogen and the nutrients from our pee and our poop but they currently go into the ocean. So the land is kind of starving for it and the ocean is choking with it. It's kind of insane. So we have lots of water treatment plants and all of that, and that's just human waste. Um, bovine, herd waste, all of this kind of thing. It's really important for the land. There's a nutrient cycle. And what that means is nutrient uptake into the animals that move on the land and nutrient deposition in the form of pee and poop. So when you have animals that move, animals that eat each other in extended food webs, they spread out the nitrogen, the phosphorus, and all of this kind of thing. And it goes all over the land. And back in the day here in Northern California, salmon were a hugely important part of that. They would take, effectively bring nutrients from the ocean back up the rivers and they would be eaten by bears and then bears would poop out ocean minerals that couldn't be accessed any other way. So our land and a lot of our animals are really needing these kinds of things and they're not getting them. So the soil is getting depleted, missing minerals. Um, even the salmon that would come up here and spawn and die, that would, that regenerated the land and the soil too. There were floodplains. Now we have deep gullies that are just washed out. So there used to be floodplains where salmon carcasses would rot out and directly nourish the soil. 
all these kinds of cycles were in place for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And we're just a little blip in time where we have stopped all those cycles. So that is in some places, that's called nutrient cycling. Um, Karl Marx actually called it metabolic rift, the break in the metabolic cycle. So he wasn't just writing about economics, he was also writing about agriculture because you can't really separate them. So whatever your feelings may be about Marx, that's a whole other topic. Absolutely. Um, Misty, I wanna, before we let you go, who's a, a incredible fellow in County, said uh, he's doing wonderful work. Uh, his organization is the most size center for regenerative pastoralism. Um, we've all been intimately involved with, with that project, particularly soil for climate. He says, Misty, you're doing uh, commendable work. I would like to ask if she allows people to visit and study in her ranch. And I know you, you mentioned a little bit about the future that you were seeing into for Freestone Ranch. Yeah, we used to do talks and tours. Um, we found that we're a little too nerdy and our talks and tours weren't as popular as we'd hoped. <laughs> Obviously the pandemic has kind of ended all of that, but we're hoping to start our talks and tours again next summer. We'll see how it goes. Beautiful. We've definitely offered them in the past and we hope to do it again. And Amy Lemmer is a, is a really dear friend, very huge influence in my life, wisdom keeper. She's a Choctaw elder. She's the one you and I have shared a lot about my journey with health and housing and, mm -hmm. and took me in and backs her integrity with her functioning uh, on the human plane in a really extraordinary way. Um, and she's asking about your involvement and connection to indigenous peoples within the, within the land, uh, within yeah. the regional base that you operate in. Unfortunately, we haven't had much yet. Um, I can tell you we're doing an experimental project because as you might guess with my approach to gardening, I couldn't help but ask myself, why on earth am I growing European annuals as my primary source of food? What did the tribes even eat? So definitely one of the books that we read 15 years ago was Tending the Wild. Um, we are incredibly curious about local native food and how did it work? How did it function? We haven't had that much of a connection to local tribes people yet. We're very interested and very curious. We do have a plot in our garden of camas and bradaya and some other um, starchy tubers because it seems very clear from our studies that acorns weren't the primary staple. They were just what was left when the cows destroyed everything else. So we we're not proud of the cow legacy in this area. We're very curious about what the plants were that were actual staples prior. So we do have a little personal project to grow and learn about these starchy uh, lily roots. My husband does a lot of hand pollinating. Um, my joke is that that's three steps. How do you grow it? How do you prepare it? How do you persuade the children to eat it? <laughs> Long-term project, a lot to learn. This is beautiful. Well, I know we have a an amazing learning center and place that's finally opening up in a nearby town in Grayton that's oh, a, yeah, a learning center and, and site for indigenous communities. Yes, we're very excited for that. We've got Pepperwood Preserve as well as uh, the Jenner Headlands that are honoring, you know, spiritual traditionalists and sort of how they uh, sort of 
land management landscape alongside uh, traditionally trained biologists and ecologists, uh, incredible partnerships that I have not seen anywhere else in the United States for the most part with how they integrate um, and then teach. Um, and I think part of that, as well as having cattle that are run, right, Donna, the market guards are on the Jenner headlands. Um, and then we have holistic ag with Aaron Lucich on the pepperwood mm -hmm. preserve. You have scientists and then you have you know, Clint McKay leading alongside uh, with the help of Ben Benson, their, their anthropologist. There's uh, uh, access to once again to and practice uh, their spiritual relationships with. Um, that just, uh, yeah, that's really special about our area. Um, the meeting of the minds and opening to the invitation of the wisdom and the respect uh, of the legacies that were incurred here that uh, we now tread upon. So, Misty, I love hearing the orientation. And we'll see what blooms for Freestone Ranch. Thank you so much for being with us here today. Um, it's entirely possible, given the way these videos spread, that there will be comments on them in the future. I'll try to let you know about them. I will absolutely be monitoring that as well. Um, please stay connected. Uh, part of the, the joy for us is making sure these communities uh, intersect and connect um, and regenerate one another around the globe, since uh, this technology does offer that, that incredible uh, abundance. Um, everyone, I do want to say before we say goodbye to Misty that Next week, we're going to take two weeks. We will make announcements in the next few days, I imagine. Um, and I think that is everything I needed to say. Any closing thoughts? Uh, anything you'd like to say, Misty? That's good. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Everyone, I think that's... <laughs> Amy says, I think she's already indigenously. You really... <laughs> You think indigenously. There we go. I would, I would absolutely can. I would be honored. I have a tiny bit of indigenous roots. Yep. I think it's, you know, Amy, Amy says really beautiful, you know, we're all indigenous to planet earth and some of the things we're really talking about, these constructs, these mental framings that are shifting is a sort of a reunification with a sensibility um, of, not necessarily that indigenous communities can sort of provide answers for the totality of the systemic issues that have just happened, but that the mental constructs offered that they hold and remember are flourishing within us as we listen and take in that wisdom that uh, has been handed down for some of us that have forgotten and others that are still waking up. So um, Misty, thank you. Such a treasure, such a treat. Thank you for being a part of this community and, um, and speaking with all of us today. Thank you. Okay. Bye everyone. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye.